episode seven. Good morning or evening. Yes. And Darcy Moran, sitting to my left, is my dear colleague and comrade, Kieran Stevenson. Yes. And this is a weakness for bleakness. Roll that tape. A modest house, a picket fence, a couple kids, some common sense, a job to pay your mortgage or your rent. And all these goals are understood, but misery is a public good, so come and feed your sorrows till you spend. Well, just to come, Captain said, the icebergs only dead ahead, the men will keep the engines fed, I have a deal with God. We're at the end of history, there ain't a hope for you or me, when workers philanthropically believe in the economy. But what feeds the tired eyes, the poison of the boiling skies, everyone their own has spies, remember when the world was wise, we Alright, uh, let's have some headlines, Darcy. First headline for today, we have, this is from greenleft.org.au, yeah. 600 turnout for Victorian Socialists campaign launch by Matt Hrakich, to whom I apologise for that definitely incorrect surname pronunciation. Yes. So, Stephen Jolly's... Uh, and his uh, and his and his comrades have got Victorian socialists off the ground and running. Wonderful! And they are registered and they are ready to stand. Come the next state election. When is the next state election? The next state election is uh, running up very soon. Actually, is it? Yeah. I thought we still had a little bit in the tank before that one. No, I don't. Got what? what I'm pretty sure that this is the third year. Of, uh, of the Andrews, the Andrews government, government. So we're looking at eighteen months. Yeah, cool. That makes sense. Uh, do do they have any like policy platform information other than the generalized? There's nothing in the article that's specific. Mm. But uh, yes, if you go to, so it's actually fuck the state election is in November. Oh, that's not far away at all. No, it's not. You can go to victoriansocialists.org.au to get the rundown on their campaign information. Excellent. Uh, Steve Jolly is standing, mm-hmm. and he's standing in the northern metro uh, region. Makes sense. Yeah, it makes sense. So he's been a councillor for the city of Yarra for many years now. He's... Uh, very dedicated, uh, community-minded councillor. He led the revolt on the bin tax, though he's not oh. crazy about being identified as the bin tax guy because <laughs> he does a huge amount of work. Yeah. He was very active during the CUB workers' strike. Right. Uh, of recent memory. Yeah, we all remember that one. And he was, until a few years ago, a very senior member of the Socialist Party in Australia. Yep. So makes sense. He left them after there was a uh, essentially a member of the party made an allegation of sexual assault against a senior member. Mm-hmm. There was an internal investigation held. They couldn't verify her claims, so they kicked her out of the party. Wow. And he said, "Well, that's a nice move from a social justice organisation. Why always I'm this leaving. result? Why always this result?" It's a very good question. Um, it's a very good question. I don't, I don't really know. I wasn't part of the investigation or, or the inquiry. Mm. But it just seemed like a strong response. Uh, yeah. Anyway, he left and he took a huge number of the bright young minds with him. Yep. Um, uh, including this, um, the, the, the 
alleging member, mm-hmm. and they've set up this new organisation. So what we have essentially are the cream of the old Socialist Party. Wonderful. Reformed the as the Victorian Socialists. Are you saying that this is a party of elites, Darcy? I'm saying this is very much the SAS of the political activists, yeah. Wow. They've well, that's a-, a flattering comparison. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think that they would... I think they would be flattered to hear that. Uh, no, but I mean, like, they're, um, you know... Yes. It, the crack team. Made up of uh, people who have real political experience, mm-hmm. real working experience, real union experience. Excellent. And who are genuinely very dedicated to democracy and equality. Yeah, excellent. I'm enthusiastic about the prospect of having somebody <laughs> in a state election that I could uh, conceivably get, get put, behind? A, put yeah. a one beside without that being some sort of compromised cage. <laughs> oh, just, yeah, these are yeah. what I've got. You've got a genuine mad Irish mm. unionist, um, as in trade unionist, not not yeah. like mad unionist, of the, not a DUP yeah. kind of... I'm digging a deep one here. The point is, Steve's <laughs> <laughs> Steve is good, and um, yeah, and this party have the potential to do a lot of incredibly good work. Cool. And they're not aiming at being an influential minor party. They mm. are aiming at breaking Labor's stranglehold over working and lower middle class voters. Good. That uh, would be a wonderful thing. It means that we have fucking. A shit fight ahead of us, which we were always going to have to have a shit fight ahead of us, but that'll be fun uh, to deal with. Absolutely, but, yeah, good. but it's I, good. They're not um, a single issue party. Basically, they've got a broad, yeah. they've got a broad base of policies, uh, which yeah, you can check out at victoriansocialists.org.au. Wonderful. I just realised that I'm not going to have the opportunity to unreservedly vote for a member of this party because there's no way they're running somebody in my area. No, but you can help campaign, and mm. you never know where things could lead. I mean, Higgins, right? Um, Kelly O'Dwyer's got a... This Obviously, I remember the Victorian Socialist Party's not going to win Higgins, but a Labour Party candidate could take Higgins. Yep. And that is pretty enormous. Yep. Um, Higgins has never been held by a non-Liberal Party member since the Liberal Party was conceived, as far as I'm aware. That is a definitive strike. So... You know, we, we live in uncertain political times. We do. Even even here in the den of the Skeksis, <laughs> where I find myself, which I will not say for reasons of uh, legal advice and also just street common cred. sense. <laughs> and street cred. Yeah. Um, but yes, I, I think that this is, is state and federal one of the safest liberal seats in the country. Yeah, I would say that's a pretty fair call. Yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. When the tallies come up when we're watching election night coverage, it's always, <laughs> always pretty disappointing because in your mind the number is always lower last time than this time. But it doesn't really. The specifics don't matter. It's always astronomically high. But yeah. So anyway, it's fresh blood for the loony left, which I'm a proud member of. Yeah. Um, what, what, what's your uh, What's your next headline, Kieran? Uh, all right. Uh, I have here from Pro Bono News, which is like a charity, a news about charities uh, publication. Senate committee says further regulatory burden on charities unnecessary. Pretty dry. Let's give some context for this. Uh, The Liberal Party has been trying to push... Uh, this legislation that seeks to further regulate and limit what 
charities are able to do right. and where they're able to get donations This is from. the uh, no nanny state, no red tape, yes. liberal government. Yeah, so just with one of their classic uh, policies straight out of the, the, the liberal guidebook uh, is to, yeah, sort of crack down on what charities are allowed to do. This is under the uh, excuse of limiting foreign donations to charities to influence elections somehow, but they're already not allowed to advocate for political parties directly. They have to, you know, abide by a pretty strict set of regulations already to avoid political yeah, interference. They're, they're allowed to comment on specific policies if yeah. they're relevant to the charity's work. Yes, yeah. exactly. So they're going to lose the capacity potentially to even do that. Well, it's pretty... I don't think there's even maybe any other interpretation other than just they're trying to be able to stamp down on charities who they want to. And Get Up is named repeated... I don't know why... This this gets me. I don't know why you would repeatedly name Get Up in your Trojan horse plan to take down Get because Up. Because these people are not good at Trojan horses. Yeah. That stopped with Howard's abdication from the imperial throne. They yeah. cannot do sneaky anymore. Yeah, exactly. Do. We have this horse. We're going to hide inside the horse. They're going to roll us into the city. And they're just fighting to be the one that gets to ride on top, being like, yeah, Dear liberals. Trojans, please sign this clause, accepting a no responsibility <laughs> clause if this horse turns out to be full of us. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. Um, so, anyway, the Senate... Com uh, there was a Senate committee to investigate this legislation led by Richard Di Natale, and he uh, delivered his report recently saying that, like, this was obvious and dangerous. Totally unconscionable bullshit, basically. Yeah, yeah, essentially. And the Liberals immediately, like, hit back in sort of their typical cack-handed fashion and it so was a whole is... thing, but hopefully for the time being, it's been shut down because it is a truly frightening idea that the government could censure charitable organisations for well, criticising policy. Yeah, it's disgusting. Get Up got in a lot of um, got a lot of fire from the Liberal Party and the IPA after the last federal election, mm. and there was an attempt by, I think it was like the Young Liberals and maybe the Cato Institute, possibly, mm. to do a kind of right-wing get-up. Yeah, because those which always go did really about well. as well as Christian rock does of emulating <laughs> mainstream Yeah, rock it's exactly. Um, exactly the thing. It's like, you already have your insanely niche audience of young psychopaths and, like, <laughs> delusional entrepreneurs who are far more fucking self-deluded than any kid they, who's trying to be an artist. They always think that there's a way you can make Toryism hip, though. Yeah. I know they had, like, the Spectator magazine with, like, Daisy Cousins talking about conservatism being the new punk rock. <laughs> yeah. And stuff. It didn't last long. Um, mm. So, the natural the natural move after your humiliating failure to be cool and interesting is to just try and stab <laughs> down yeah. all available avenues. If you can't win their hearts and minds, try and just lock them away from-, from Yeah. From the polling stations. <laughs> it's super ridiculous. This article is by Luke Michael, by the way. Sorry, Luke, I forgot to for, to name drop you. But um, essentially, yes. And it, this ties in with the publication of a of a book about how um, the, the lefties are infiltrating society. Tony Abbott spruked it recently. Oh, really? Um, yeah, yeah. 
It's um, I've, I've forgotten who wrote it and He's what it's infiltrating called. Infiltrating society. It's literally so. It's it, it's essentially all of Alan Jones's cultural elites talking points published yeah. in book form, with like a kind of conservative Amazing. response guide. Um, <laughs> I don't understand it. Somehow dissatisfied people have infiltrated the working classes <laughs> again. Like it, it rests really heavily on this concept of political correctness, which it then never goes on to actually define. Yeah, of course it doesn't, because it's a fucking meaningless term, which just means I'm not allowed to fucking throw around racial epithets yeah. at my or, will or in a means, public sphere. Like, you know, as Stuart Lee pointed out, when people talk about political correctness, they're often talking about, like, fucking health and safety re- legislation. Or yeah, like, yeah, know. yeah, exactly. <laughs> the political correctness has gone mad. I have it's, to wear a hard hat at the Falling Rock factory. Yeah. Uh, Trump had is like, oh, you know, I know a lot of people are saying it, and they, they shouldn't be saying it, that, you know, we shouldn't let Russia back in the G8 because it's not very politically correct. But, you know, at the end of the day, you know, they're a country and they should be in the G8. Like, what does to do with political correctness? <laughs> it's because they don't get let back into the club until they stop invading Ukraine. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's That's like geopolitical strategy that he's misconstrued. <laughs> this word has run way too wild. <laughs> yeah. They can't put me in jail for murder. It's political <laughs> correctness gone mad. Come on, governor. Mm-mm. You do a passable Trump voice. I'm impressed by that. I'm revolted by that. I guess I guess that's the advantage is like often your American accents are very broad stereotypes for when you're dealing with Donald. Uh, it's anything. I am not an actor. Um, so what's your next headline? Behind the aggressive headlines, Paul Dacre was being sidelined at the Daily Mail. This is by oh. Ian Burrell writing for iNews. Mm. Paul Dacre was, for those who are not in the know, a British figure, not an Australian one, but he is of huge global significance. He was essentially the Roger Ailes of the UK. Mm-hmm. His um, quarter century at the helm of the Daily Mail made really Fox News itself was probably the only non-state-sponsored psycho-propaganda arm that was more hysterical and dangerous <laughs> than the Daily Mail. And at times, the Mail beat even them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Some Sometimes the Mail goes off the fucking Yeah, so this scale. is this is the man responsible for the literal um, Syrian refugees are cockroaches coverage. Oh, yes, wonderful. The judges as the enemies of the people because they pointed <laughs> out Theresa May was being unconstitutional. <laughs> right? Didn't, they didn't say, by the way, that Brexit couldn't happen. That. They <laughs> just said she had to do it legally. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I remember that fucking shit show. Um, and ironically, his brand of, uh, of reactionary Toryism mm. actually rails against all of the things that you would think a British patriot would love about classical liberal Britain. Independent yep. judiciaries, re- representative democracy. Yeah. Enterprise and initiative, free movement of people, free movement of goods and services. He hates all of those things, yet is lionised by the people who claim that they love classical liberalism. Yeah. Um, It's because people don't have any ideological awareness at the moment or any more, generally. No, they don't. He's he's been sort of like sacked by promotion. Because mm. um, Viscount Rothermere has not been brave enough to appropriately deal with this man for, you know, 26 years, and there's no mm-hmm. indication he's going to start doing it soon. Rothermere was 
not a Brexiteer. He was a Remainer. Uh, he's also in favour of general like, trade and free movement of people and ideas and stuff, mm. which are all positions he's used to defend the male's horrible crimes against reason and decency <laughs> over the past 26 years. Uh, and he's sacked Dacre, or he's promoted Dacre too yeah. late to save uh, the UK from Brexit. But, Significantly too late. Yeah, but it's, uh, you know, it has happened. The new guy is going to be a bloke called uh, Grieg. Okay. Uh, Geordie Grieg, who's an old Etonian. Mm-hmm. He edits the mail on Sunday, and he's right. a much more moderate political voice than yeah. Paul Dacre. He's still uh, a bad guy by my political lights, but mm-hmm. he's far more moderate than uh, Paul Dacre. <laughs> he's yeah. apparently not really racist, yeah. only a bit sexist, and sort of more just doesn't understand the British public rather than actively loathing and uh, yeah. and, f- and fearing them. So, you know- the tone will shift. Well, I mean, that's good, I guess. I don't know. Daily but- Mail at the moment is one of those publications that, like, even the complete amateurism of a community like uh, Imgur, which I keep bringing up because they're the, the most poisonous political community on the internet, and I'm including Reddit in, in the internet. Well, there are some but- nice people on Reddit. Uh, good, good people on both sides, Karen. Yeah, yes, yes. Thank you, sir. Um- yeah, even they, when a Daily Mail headline gets posted, will be like, this is garbage. So, if it gets more moderate, is that not then potentially- Potentially slipping? dangerous. Look, I think if it gets moderate, that will just kill it, to be perfectly frank. Because that would the be Mail has got to a point now where if you are not a Daily Mail reader, even if mm. you, like, read The Sun or The Daily Mirror or one of the other noxious fucking yeah. publications, you're still a long way to the left of the fucking Daily Mail. And you- mm. If you are not a Daily Mail reader, the odds are you are never going to become one at this point. It has yeah. just become such a poisonous name. Uh, yeah. And its own readership will likely abandon it in favour of some British version of Breitbart, yeah. I would say. Um, I hope we get a 90s-style brand reconfiguration and they're like, now, instead of the Daily Mail, what you get is the Dale. And it's just D-A-I-L. Well, they could just change it. Optus rebranded as Yes a few years ago oh, for fuck, reasons yeah. no one understands. <laughs> yeah. they, they could just call themselves No with an exclamation mark. <laughs> just, yeah. No. <laughs> I won't have it is the subheading. Yeah. Uh, so, that's, yeah, that's it's good news too late, but it's good news. Yeah. Um, a piece of poison has been removed from democratic public life. Yep. Rip in peace, you piece of shit. The one upside to this is there is now a fraction less pressure on the British government Mm -hmm. to do a stupid Brexit deal. Yeah. They'll still do it. I mean, yeah. It's still not going to go well, but it's a little bit less pressure on them to do a stupid Brexit deal. Mm. Um, Their current position, which they took like two years to fucking agree with, is one the Europeans told them eight months ago wasn't an option. Yeah, yeah. They've literally just been like, so how about this, though? (laughs) (laughs) Michel Barnier just has no words. (laughs) (laughs) I don't think he even bothers turning up sober to those meetings anymore. (laughs) Why would you? What? It's it's just going to trundle along in this absolute idiocy, this mid-80s British sitcom farce. Yeah, <laughs> Until dad, one day- Dad's just, government. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. 
And then it's just, it's going to fucking end in, I don't know, small scale nuclear war or something. There's no way that it's going to go smoothly. Or it'll be like the chapel in Barcelona that's still being built hundreds of years later. What's going to happen? Most positive outcome. Corbyn inherits a Britain more badly damaged than it was in Mm. 1946. Mm -hmm. And has to borrow insane amounts of money in order to fix the chaos and destruction that's been wrought on the economy. Labour gets accused of spending like a sailor and being financially reckless. Oh, fuck. And instead of just paying these debts off long-term and having infrastructure and social services in place, Mm. the Tories will win the next election on the back of that finance scare and undo everything that the Labour Party have put together again, leaving Britain even more fucked up than she was in the first place. By this point, Scotland will no longer be a part of the United Kingdom. Australia will still have the St. Andrew's Cross in our (laughs) Mm -hmm. Union Jack. Yeah. And Wales will be, I guess, trying to become part of France or something. Yeah. Good luck, Wales. (laughs) Fuck, you're right. It's so grimly predictable. It's just going to be another (laughs) cycle. Oh, well. But, yeah, it'll be less funny, I guess, and harrowing, because the Daily mm. Mail will be in the, a safe pair of hands, yeah, uh, not a maniac pair of hands. Yeah. I would ask you, in future, just to tread with caution, because the moment of euphoria that I'm going to experience when Corbyn wins is a precious thing. I will not say anything, Kieran. I just, I don't want it preemptively undermined because I'm only going to get one shot at that joy probably until the day that I'm dead. We will- So give me a couple of days. We will listen to hear it for the boy and drink some, I don't know, British lager. Yeah. Oh, great. We can go to the British section at Dan Murphy's (laughs) and choose between like, we cold piss- and fucking grandma's luncheon. Make grandma's- sure you serve this at room temperature. <laughs> yeah. Um, oh, look, the Young's banana bread beer was okay. Yeah, that's true. Uh, it better be they okay, because that's going to be their main fucking export. Anymore, don't for, no, don't they? Well, I don't know. They still have the Matzo's beers, but that's Australian. The Matzo's are from Broom. Yeah. But Broom sounds a bit like Britain when you're really drunk. Yeah, we can just proceed off of that. Uh, oh, <laughs> bleak. Anyway, how, how shall we move on? Yeah. Because I have a fucking humdinger. Go. Ding my hum. It's the Elder Scrolls 6, baby. It's real. <gasps> that's your that's your political headline <sighs> number four. That's even better for than this Corbin. week. It's real. It's that's not coming out probably until like 2024, but it's real. Better they than Steve it. Corbin and Jeremy Jolly put together into a strange thing that I just did then. Yes, yes. I'm legitimately <sighs> legitimately excited for a video game which has not happened to me in a very long time. I've enjoyed them before, but excited about an upcoming one. You get to play the That's chosen weird. one who has to fight all the bugs and the code until you find yeah. it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It'll turn out to be dog shit in some way, but it doesn't matter. Dog shit that I can obliviously sink fucking 200 hours into before I realize that it's not very good is still 200 joyous hours. Ah. Uh. Anyway, that's about all there have is to say Have they said anything about, about it, or that. have they just said it's coming No, out? they've done a little trailer of, like, a camera zooming over some mountains and the theme done in a new way. Nobody knows where it's okay, set. Okay, so we've got, we've got rural Europe and a castle. 
Yeah, yeah, basically. it's There's a big kind of cratery kind of thing, which the castle is. This is my cynicism. It's like a beautiful landscape, and there's this big sort of valley that leads up to a kind of blasted cliff, and there's a castle built on the cliff that then opens out onto a plain. So it's kind of like a, oh, okay. you know, flat, then uh, verticality, and then sort of a higher, a higher valley, which looks beautiful. However, the only thing that I could think of was like, well... The valley is near the coast, which means that for 99% of the game time, when I'm approaching that city, it's going to be from that fucking crater, and it's going to be a pain in the ass every time. Yeah, probably. Scaling that fucking mountain. Probably. Oh, you're going to have to do so much side jumping to get up the mountain. I hope, yep. they, I hope they don't huh? do something huh? about it, because huh? playing, huh? playing Witcher 3 was quite frustrating when you're mm. used to Bethesda mountain physics yeah, to have yeah, yeah. a guy who genuinely can't just jump up a the yeah. tallest mountain in the world. <laughs> or you can, but, like, Bethesda has this way of, make, like, tricking you to be like, yeah, I'm good at jumping. This makes sense. I know that I'm scamming the game, but it makes sense somehow when you do it in Witcher. It's like, you've got to fucking, like, jump and turn into this crevice so that it warps you up the mountain. And it's like, very much, I'm exploiting this. Yes, true. I'm janking around. Anyway, not a video games podcast, but- we did say when we put this together that it would be politics we're, and a little bit of culture yeah, here and there. We're allowed to really take some joy in life. Yeah, that's good news. Thank you for thank you for uh, thank you for the the uplifting experience, Kieran. That's all right. My pleasure. Now, topics. Yes. <laughs> all right, topics. Yes. Um. So, rather than my usually. Thoroughly researched, absolutely rigorous topics. Those ones that I've been bringing to you, such as Kieran tries to remember some post-structuralist research he read two years ago. And uh, let's talk about Kanye. Um, This time, I thought we'd just have a broad discussion because what I was researching was like arts funding in Australia and Victoria. And that's something I do want to talk about at some point, um, because it's a, a, a terrible fucking thing. I know a bunch of artists, they're all grown adults, and they all live objectively fucking impoverished lives, except for the ones who have managed to compromise themselves into some art-adjacent situation or whatever. Yeah. But while I was doing reading for that, um, I came up against a couple of things, and I started to wonder about the arts in socialism, art under socialism, the arts generally as an industry, quote unquote, under socialism. Um, because I think it's been that there's a lot of theory about it written in the old golden age of socialism. Yeah. Uh, like William Morris and shit like that. Um, but there's not a ton of discussion going on about it at the moment. And there are a few, I think, dangerous traps that former socialist kind of movements have fallen into. Socialist realism probably being the biggest, most egregious example. Obviously, that's under fucking, you know, despotic regimes rather than the blissful kind of even-headed utopias that we want to fucking establish. But the thinking in socialist communities at the moment can sometimes tend towards that. So, I was reading this article written by uh, some dipshit called Neil Windle. Uh, He wrote an article called Art Under Socialism for the Socialist Party of Great Britain, I think. Okay. 
Uh, it's an under-researched piece of trash that doesn't cite a single artist or piece of art later. I think he, he cites Bob Dylan right at the end, and that might be the most contemporary artist he cites. Uh, it's an interesting uh, link to draw with socialism, but all right. Well, I forget the context. He just board. he name-drops a whole bunch of things. Um, but his point, or <clears throat> I don't know if he really had a point, but he was kind of saying that, like, art currently is an elitist uh, institution in Western society. Only the elites get to do it. They get fame. And under socialism, uh, art would either cease to exist and people would make William Morris-style useful objects that are also beautiful, or everybody would become artists, but art would get worse. He makes a series uh, of claims so like- interesting- anti-elitist position (laughs) yeah um (laughs) right uh he makes a couple of you know good points like the commodification of art would be reduced and the artificial separation of art and craft might be mediated a little bit or whatever but i think that the world is kind of doing that on its own because everybody loves fucking genre work uh and maybe the craziest point that he makes is uh, he argues that Because art, he says that art is good now almost exclusively because of the problems of capitalism, because it's a response to the problems of capitalism, and that under socialism, uh, there would be no problems, or at least socialism would be Hmm, open and transparent about its problems. So the main purpose of art as conceived of today would cease to exist, which is a fucking wackadoo fucking point. Yeah, Um, that's uh, wackadoo indeed. Yes. So, I'm not saying that he represents thinking of art under Ooh. socialism. Generally, I read a bunch of other stuff where, but, uh, you know, people were trying to figure out how industries would work, how, whether there would be a royalty model or a negotiation right. how model. How do we deal with was, intellectual property if we don't yeah, have private property? Somebody was saying that the artist would go to the factory and negotiate with the workers, percentage cuts and stuff, but that sounds pretty much like uneven industry negotiation to me or yeah, like work like choices for artists. Bargaining, yeah. Some people were advocating for flat fee. So you just get a thousand bucks for your book manuscript or your album or whatever. And then they make either a billion dollars or right. 500. So this is a, this is an argument being had by people whose idea of like what socialism is, is basically we're just going to take capitalism and take a big stick and stir it up and yeah. make sure that none of it works. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and yeah, that's going to be socialism. But my point, I think, is just that people are confused. Yeah. And, uh, and it's not something that I see addressed a lot. And I worry that, unjustly, I'm sure, uh, that some of the main thinking behind... Because a lot of, like, really hardcore socialists aren't necessarily that involved in the arts. Their interests are in history and politics and yes. stuff like that. So, if the people who are not that interested in art, who are history and politics boffins, when they start to talk about it, they start to talk about art that's exclusively motivated by social responsibility. They Mm. start to talk about uh, workers' art and folk art resurgence, which is this weird double gesture of, like, saying that craft is fine and then sort of saying that we'll all just have shitty craft, which I think is the trap that Neil Windle talks himself into. Yeah, is is this is this what happens when I mm. hear socialists start to worry about what will mm. go wrong when the profit motive is taken away from 
Well, see, I don't think... Producers. I think that the... I, I'm not really worried about it, but uh, I would like to discuss what you think about it, uh, because I don't think... The profit motive exists in art institutions and stuff, but in the production of art on a personal level, the profit motive isn't a particularly present force for a lot of artists. No, right? it's not relevant to they, most artists' daily life. They yeah, get yeah. by on fuck all the arts industries usually get by on fuck all these incredibly uh uh like unstable grant year by year kind of funding arrangements with government oh, and stuff horrendous. like that and 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 the um the collapse of uh, income support and mm. and the welfare state has made it much harder for people to live and work as artists yeah these days than it was in say the 1960s to 80s right yeah and yeah. i think that's a reason there why a lot of um let's say socialist art has fallen away whereas capitalist art is booming it's mm. a great time for capitalist art oh yes because they've got the resources to produce it mm-hmm. so under socialism art can only really become better as more and more people are given access to the tools and resources that they need to devote themselves to creating their art. Yeah. Well, this is the second little part of my question here is, are we already experiencing socialize not socialization, but socializationization of art with the, the freedom, like the DIY kind of ethos and the democratization of access to resources. People can make an album in their bedroom. Now they can write a book on, well, I mean, books have always been cheap as fuck to write. The visual arts are basically the only thing that's still restricted by cost and access to materials. And I yeah, think an exhibition space and so on. Yeah. And I think um, it's probably no accident then that in a lot of ways, the official visual arts kind of cultures still maintain maybe the most elitist philosophy or whatever, at least among the older yeah, well, visual art also is is the art that can be invested in, right? Mm, yeah. Um, with very rare circumstances, you wouldn't buy a record or a book, mm. assuming that it's going to increase in value unless it happens to be you know, a particularly limited edition or first yeah. print or what yeah. fucking have you, collector's item, right? Yeah. Um, visual art is the only art that has that kind of intrinsic physical value mm. that allows it to be used as a promissory note uh, and therefore a capitalist yes and that that uh market has been underlying the the arts the visual arts for fucking ages now yeah of course of course and and will always have elitism therefore because it's got that kind of Mm. financial prestige associated with it um that you know that social endorsement from Mm. the the great power of our age which is the market yeah yeah can you even uh, oust elitism from, <laughs> from the I'm human. not a moron, I swear. I didn't <laughs> mean to out? say that as two separate words. Elitism. Uh, from from the arts, like, you obviously can in the sense of the way that it is expressed in the visual art community of, like, very fucking high society, black tie event style shit, but... Yeah, but you t- in terms of, like, cultural snobbery elitism, can you... Yeah. No, I don't think you can, but I don't think it's necessarily a tremendous problem, I it, don't except either, really. for when you've got massive power, yeah. um, a dynamic issues in society, as mm. we do at the moment. 
right? In a socialist world, of mm. course, there'd be snobbery. There's always yeah. going to be snobbery, right? Because people have preferences and they get insecure about those preferences. <laughs> but if everyone's got a, a comparable power platform to work from, that snobbery isn't necessarily going to be a huge issue. It just means that you're yeah. closing yourself off to options and yeah. you're going to enjoy less of life. Like, I struggle with rap music. There are some rappers I quite like, mm. but I'm quite snobby about rap music. Yeah. And the reason for that is my experiences at school and a lot of the dickheads <laughs> who like listening to rap. Sure. It's got nothing to do with rappers or the style. It's essentially yeah. just a an often very, uh, very beautiful and rich form of poetry. Now, I don't think that you can defend your artistic preferences by some crazy argument that art might be a subjective or personal experience <laughs> rather than an objective list of what's good and bad. Well, there's always good and bad art, isn't there, any time and in any yeah. movement, you know? Um, mm. Like, you know, some of the, the doggerel that's been forgotten from the past and in things that now snobbery favours, like mm. the Baroque yeah. era of classical music and... Yeah. You know, the sort of, you know, grand operas of the 19th century and things. Mm. Tremendous amounts of shit has been forgotten. You know, awful, terrible, ghastly Baroque works that will yeah. fortunately never be played ever again because no one bothered yeah. saving the manuscripts from them. If you've ever gone through a directory of uh, royalty-free public <laughs> domain classical music, as Ooh. I did for the episode where we had the sting where Wolf Blitzer was equivocating <laughs> about arms dealing... You will see that there are so many dog shit pieces of classical music called, like, The Dog in the Pond. And it's some (laughs) person who's like, I wanted to write a piece for the ultra piccolo, the highest whistle in the fucking flute family. And it's just ear-piercing shit. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Oh, God, it's very bloody true. And look, you know, a lot of Shakespeare's plays were not terribly good as well. Um, Mm. Some of them are my favourite bits of literature ever, but, you know... Henry II, just long and painful. Yep. Early Tarantino stuff, uh, <laughs> basically. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. They had this thing where uh, it was like, a long-forgotten Vonnegut short story released. First oh. time it's ever been seen since the original run of the magazine. Yeah, I was super excited. Kurt Vonnegut and was, decided it was never going to see the yeah, light. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was yeah, like yeah. one of five stories that he'd <laughs> hidden so that they couldn't be found after he died. And then 15, 20 years after he died, somebody tracked it down and they published it. And it's like, oh, this is not very good because it's like a 25-year-old writing a piece of pulp Oh, amusement yeah, or something the, it was designed to be. The atrocious, you know. Yeah. Almost like artists aren't actually good. You just, you you arrange a bunch of stuff and mm. sometimes you're lucky and it happens to work out well. Yeah. But the work is good. You're just an arranger who got lucky. Yes. That's very <laughs> postmodern of you. I like well, it. It's how I soothe myself about my terrible attempts to write a book. <laughs> Still just arranging. Oh, God. So Still hard. just arranging. Uh, yeah. This, this concept, though, of socialism as a, as a political structure and as a social structure mm. and the impact that would have on art is a really old debate as well. Yeah. It's, it's been discussed for as long as we've been thinking about socialism, probably beforehand, mm. before we had that kind of vocabulary. In his essay on the soul of man under socialism, Oscar Wilde was really optimistic about the role of art in a post-capitalist world because it would fill that niche that, uh, or even in like a 
still capitalist world at the time he was writing. You know, this mm. essay came out circa 1900. Yeah. Wow. Um, and they were still capitalist in 1900, huh? Well, you know what and I mean? And they can't is it- <laughs> get with us in 2018, 1900. Things are so much better now. I wasn't dumping on you. I was just upset, upset about history. I mean, and the, there's there's something kind of slightly ironic about Oscar Wilde discussing the virtues of the artist as a socialist, given mm. the incredibly fucking luxurious life that yeah, those aren't plays. particularly <laughs> compatible philosophies. Is socialism <laughs> in extreme Epicureanism? But then you know, if it's there, you may as well. If there's going to be yeah. inequality, why not be on the nice side of it? Like, yeah, it's totally. I could see why you throw he, in. Plus, you know, it, it, it all caught up with him anyway um (laughs) given what ended up happening to him he deserved those good years Mm. um but yeah he he saw the process of industrialization and um consumerism that was commodifying everything Mm. as being one that essentially disassociated most human beings from what was precious in life what was important yeah people lost their you know Tradesmen used to be artisans, right? Yeah. And that was gone. Mm. They were just production units. Yeah. And Uh, this might be one of the most obvious, like, predictions proven right, but, like, that is the alienation of people from the products of their labour. Yeah. It's, like, just one of the most canny and unexpectedly far-reaching and deep. Yeah, absolutely. And and you Uh, can't underestimate it. It's enormous if people are putting this level of energy into jobs that they know are bullshit jobs. Yeah. Um, the the psychological and the emotional impact of that is enormous. Yeah, it absolutely really, enormous. Really and so he felt that art could be a palliative, right? It sure. would be um, because it was your chance to spend time doing something that was useless, just pursuing beauty for beauty's own sake. Mm. He saw it as having a really key role in the socialist project and the socialist idea. Yeah. Um, That's fair. And also there's a lot of, like, because so much art deals with the mundanity and the meaninglessness of these fucking work arrangements. Yeah. Uh, everybody from fucking Kafka to Steinbeck is on this. Oh my God. What was that? Your phone? Um, that's all right. Uh, there's something to be gained from being a participant in this interrogation of the work thing, not just participating in it mindlessly or whatever. You will find individuals who are more psychologically healthy if, uh, they're kind of keen of mind. They can survive for a lot, a lot longer in shitty jobs than the people who are just like, oh, I just go to work and I come home and I chill out and then end up, you know, doing a triple murder suicide by the time that they're 34. Yeah, this is true. Um, Bit of a derail, but then you did check your phone for the entirety of my speech <laughs> there. So. Robin needed to know <laughs> if the milk in the fridge was safe to drink because oh, she course. has a lot of trust in my house husbandry skills. <laughs> <laughs> Wonderful. Um, (laughs) Sorry. So, art can be a palliative. Art can be a palliative, yeah. Uh, Mm. But, you know, I mean, there was also a suggestion, though, in um, The Soul of Man and Socialism that eventually art will cease to be a meaningful topic if Mm. socialism can achieve the social ends that it requires, which I don't think is fair unless you've got Oscar's really puritanical notion of what art is yeah. and that it has to be something that's completely useless. Yeah. Um, 
which I fucking he never really actually defined what where those no, lines that's were. The, the <laughs> sketchiest, most that, evasive. As much like, as I love Oscar Wilde, he was not one to sully his elevated mind with definitions and evidence. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah, what a brilliant move because it's like. It, Oh, it would be counterintuitive for me to uh, define my terms. Yeah, <laughs> right. I'm not a. I'm, I don't, I'm, and by the way, I am actually not an academic. I'm just an artiste. I'm just, yeah, exactly. If I was 100%. to put together a genuinely informative essay, it would violate its own existence. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly. And, and, and explode and kill me. It took fucking nearly <laughs> half a decade for Camus to unpick that shit <laughs> and be like, wait, no, we can be fatalistic and rigorous at the same time. But it's not as much fun. Um, mm, that's true. But yeah, so if you look at things like, say, public amusements, right, like comedies, mm. yeah, that's art as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, sure. Um, that will always be useful and always be relevant because even in a socialist utopia, mm. life is still going to be fucking incredibly hard and miserable. And yeah, you, you're still you going to do your shift on be the more, farm. Your it, wife yeah. is still going to fall out of love with you. Or your, your children might die before you. Your parents. Yeah. I mean, hopefully, your parents will die before you, uh, for their sake. But yeah. you know, you're going to have to go raw through that bereavement. Um, yeah, life is still a raw deal because it's yeah. finite, right? It's finite and it's fragile, yeah. and socialism won't fix that. It'll make it better, but yeah. it won't get rid of the fundamental grievances. This is where socialists may be able to not turn away from, but take a little detour away from dialectical materialism into some other philosophy that. Because dialectical materialism has that implication built into it that if we just make uh, material conditions good enough, then we'll be at the end of history. It kind yeah. of commits that same sin as Yeah, Francis there'll never Fukuyama. be an end of history until the sun blows up. It's going to be a mm. dramatic fucking... In- this planet will be dramatic until it is gone. It's going to be a lot of unnecessary drama. And that's most of life is unnecessary drama. Yeah? Yeah. And art will always be a really key part in dealing with that yeah. and articulating it. That's the necessary drama. That's right. I think- Drama becomes necessary. There was a better way the to main- do that. <laughs> the ma- drama is only drama if it is completely useless. <laughs> <laughs> it's the perfect drama. Uh-huh. Um, I think if socialism is going to have a major impact on art, it will mm. probably be a, an increased- general quality of public art because art will cease to be at the whim of patrons and become Mm. something that's more generated by the community that has to live amongst it, right? And as more people get access to the means of creating art, Mm. um, those communities build upon each other, they teach each other, they create more and more interesting things. This idea that you're going to, like, that socialism is going to lead to the art being diluted by more humans getting poured into it is yeah. f- atrocious and uh, yeah. foolish and quite gross, actually, to be perfectly honest with you. Um, yes. Yeah, just <laughs> really gross. <laughs> it is, it's so weird. I couldn't believe it when I was reading that article and it's like, maybe the art won't be as good, but there'll be more of it. Yeah, it's like it's a, literally crazy. a stock cube that you're just yeah. going to put too much water on. 
yeah and like or uh, or like to make great art you have to be a rich dickhead that is sequestered in a literal ivory tower yeah just paid to make art which of course isn't true no no money does not buy taste this is not mm. to say that rich people are by definition not discerning mm. you know there are rich people with style as there are poor people with style yeah. and rich people who are all ass and no class like the president <laughs> of america yeah. who thinks that gold toilets are chic i mean yeah well you know. <laughs> yeah 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 and there have been there have been rich artists who have been sequestered with family money or whatever and made their art that yeah. way. But there well, have also been people who have fucking and I think choked out masterpieces. One of the reasons why art is associated with the wealthy mm. classes is because they traditionally have the resources, and that's time resources as well as financial resources, yeah. to produce it and to work on it. Which under a healthy welfare state with maybe some sort of universal yeah. basic income system. Everybody maybe, couldn't maybe work, could you know. Everyone could work. I mean, so the, the BBC recently mm. has, and unfortunately, this hasn't been really attached to high profile names, but bubbling up from the sort of middle management of the BBC at the moment is a real frustration with the fact that they're just getting the same people through and through and through and through and through. Yeah. Because this kind of internship culture that capitalism's created favours the children of the upper and middle classes yeah. when they're going to work in the media. And the media is an important part of the arts establishment. Mm-hmm. Um, so in that sense, capitalism is kind of lopping off whole branches of the, kind of the art tree, if you like, um, and withering it. Mm. You know, and this went from a situation where Gina Yashiri is this... English comedian. Mm. She's moved to America now because of uh, racism in the UK. Right. Had a show proposal for the BBC and she was told point blank, like, oh, no, we've got our black quota. Well. Right, and she said like, the, the thing that really horrified her was the fact that this guy she was speaking to did not see anything about what the, was wrong. He wasn't being smug. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He wasn't like, he oh, was... no, we've got another. He was just like, oh, no, we've got the quota, so we don't need your show. Right. She was like, but that's- the, the quote is meant to be a minimum. It's a diversity yeah. minimum. You can still have more than just because, mm. and like literally that quota was Stephen K. Amos had one <laughs> show running at the time, right? Yeah. Um, I was raping a boy the other week. Yeah. Sorry, so, Stephen K. Amos is a piece of shit. Uh, <laughs> this is long before any of that came out. Yeah, no, I'm sure that he was. He gave me a hug. When he, after mercilessly making yeah. fun of me for an hour and a half at the Melbourne Comedy Festival in 2008. <laughs> He gave yeah. me a ni- very nice hug. That was before we met, but we might have been at the same Stephen K. Amos show. Yeah. Yeah. I and was- I was probably like, ha, 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 keep making fun of that prick. Ah, <laughs> uh, look, you know, I, I, I was somewhat perversely flattered by the experience. I'm sure. But, I um, think that's th- how he operates. Yeah, no doubt. <laughs> no doubt. flattery. But we're straying now. We're straying. So yes. She, sorry. She wrote a sketch, which was, uh, uh, you know, five fluffy haired kind of, you know, thin young men from Cambridge mm. who sort of were told by the, you know, a black guy at the BBC. And it was like BBC. Yeah, no, it was the BBC. But it was like set in Nigeria, right? Right. And he was like, oh, I'm sorry, we've got our middle class Cambridge quota pretty much covered. <laughs> yeah. We don't need your show. Um, but then she said, but, you know, that's <laughs> that, that was not like a... That was not supposed to be a forecast for where the corporation was headed when I wrote that sketch. <laughs> that was literally just a tongue-in-cheek, fuck you, I'm going to America now. 
kind of thing. But that's what's yeah. ended up happening, and that's not because of the BBC's own policies, other than the fact that they've joined in this internship culture. Yeah. And that yeah. now the arts has become closed to people who don't have private means. Yes, uh, which is endemic here as well, and like yeah, totally, it, it is quite absolutely. A problem. Although I, I mean, we try at least in in Melbourne, there are a bunch of organisations that try really, really hard, but there's a limit to what you can do with. There is a limit to what you can do and- when you're working in this capital. Um, capital-defined environment and you don't have any capital, you know? Yeah. And even if you do have capital, the to, to get an arts thing moving using that sort of traditional Western-influenced investment model requires a tremendous amount of investment that's not necessarily sustainable, yeah. right? Because art is not always a business case. Well, yeah, yeah. It's not. It shouldn't be. No, it shouldn't be. It shouldn't mm. be. Sometimes it, it happens to be, but it shouldn't be a a determining factor in whether or not you have art yeah which is like uh the wheeler center gets a little bit of shit and i don't know if it's justified or not for its kind of like milk toastishness or whatever uh but you know where else are you going to get somebody like steve albini giving an entire talk for free i'm a fan of the wheeler center i think criticism of the wheeler center mostly comes from people who are kind of like ignoring the centre's very publicly declared brief and expecting mm. it to act like a mouth for the piece for their own views. Yeah, yeah. You know, the Willow Centre's not supposed to be an ideological um, apparatus. Apparatus, yeah. yeah. It's, it, it's simply there to curate as best it can. Um, And also you're not supposed to be like, why isn't this life support curing my cancer? It's like, yeah, you have cancer. You need the life support at least. Yeah. And then we work on the rest of the shit. That's it. It's, it's, and you know, I also point out the Wheeler Center is seldom criticized by people who are actually doing anything fucking helpful themselves. It's just (laughs) an aside. I'm talking about very (laughs) high level esoteric criticisms from the fucking halls of the Academy that might as well be debates over which fucking, whether to use sulfur or saltpeter in your fireball recipe or whatever. The Uh, best historical veracity. (laughs) Yeah. Um, yeah. Okay. Uh, ooh, we've did, beaten did this into the ground. That- I buried the lead a little bit there because I don't think that fucking anything's really going to change except for maybe finance and funding structures. But I, I uh, wanted, firstly, f- to have one of these topic things be a bit more of a conversation. Rather yeah, than that's a, fair. Rather than just a, a, than a sort a of analysis. Yeah. And, and secondly, it's just, yeah, something that I have seen not talked about that much. And every time I see it talked about in these communities, it kind of gets into these weird, like- it immediately goes into these theoretical tentacles that yeah. kind of curl up on themselves. I was going to say, it's a really difficult conversation to have because when you're just talking about art in a socialist context, it's unbelievably abstract, right? Yeah. Because it depends entirely on whatever the relevant community decides it wants to do with exactly. art. You exactly. know, that's sort of the whole point. I am interested in the questions over like industrial configurations, you mm. know, when workers own the means of production and stuff distribution and all of that shit but that is well exactly that's a very clever thing. it depends on because i i do have a little bit on cooperatives that we can let's discuss talk about it d- yes cooperatives so cooperatives um basically i i assume no knowledge on on behalf of the listener so let's do a quick, mm. quick rundown essentially what you have in a cooperative is a business that is um fundamentally very different from what we have as our traditional kind of shareholder capitalist 
uh, business, mm. very different from a family business. A cooperative is a business which is owned, for instance, by the people working at the business mm. or the people who are the main consumers of that business. So, mm -hmm. for example, a credit union is yep. like a financial services cooperative, sure. which its customers are the owners of. If you have an account with the credit union, you own it. Mm. Um, a uh, farm in which everyone who works on the farm owns a share of it and profits uh, are kind of communally generated mm -hmm. is a workers' cooperative. Yeah. Right. There's a lot of different cooperative structures, and they don't all fulfill the same purpose. Mm-hmm. And there are can be issues, you know. Owners' cooperatives can generate workers' rights issues, and workers' cooperatives can occasionally engage in, you know, potentially cartel behaviour and so forth. Yep. But you know, they're, they're a a democratic alternative to traditional hierarchical companies. Yes. And it seems to me that we have been left in a position where they're the last real uh, recourse for us in this late-stage capitalist transitional phase, right, if we want mm -hmm. decent workplaces. State capitalism yeah. failed and was fucking horrible. Mm -hmm. It was like liberal capitalism, but with all of the shit things and none <laughs> of the good things. <laughs> sure. <laughs> Awful state capitalism. Um, the kind of nationalised model for things like emergency services and so forth, mm. I don't think are germane to cooperative treatment. I think that's where you want to keep, like, unionised public service workers. Yeah. Right? Because this is the other alternative, is you either have, f f for a quasi-socialist economy mm. that's still in this capitalist grip, you either need co-ops or unions, right? Yeah. Preferably cooperatives where co-ops are possible and unions where co-ops might not be practical. Yeah. Um, I definitely... I shudder at the thought of police cooperatives. Really yeah, no, no, no. Fuck, terrifying. Cannot emphasize how strongly I agree with that. Because that's a lynch mob, right? <laughs> yeah, that's, that's the US police yeah. is a fucking Ugh. essentially a police cooperative because they're all, yeah. And firefighters I do trust, but because of the police, the firefighters aren't allowed to either. Yeah, and you just don't want to leave any, like, Trojan horses. That's right. For, uh, yeah, the cops to be like, oh. But- um, Volunteer but, firefighter, so that's why I shot that dude or something. Traditionally nationalist, or na not traditionally nationalized assets, um, like say telecommunications, for instance, yep. could be run as say a customers co-op with yep, that's interesting unionized workers. Yeah, right? that would alleviate a lot of the problems that the political right had with the way the state was running these resources in the past, mm -hmm. and it would alleviate a lot of the problems that everyone who has to use these fucking resources has with the way the private sector runs them. Yeah, which is almost always essentially as just crumbling monopolies. Yeah, well, because it's a wealth extraction. It's like, it's mm. like in, in June when, you know, like each of the great houses gets to spend 100 years on June just digging up all the spice they can yeah, before the yeah. next one replaces them. It's pretty yeah. much that model, right? That, that is it, 100%. <laughs> Do you, people think that it's, like, about the First World War and about, like, imperialism and, and sort of global relations, but it's actually just about train operator contracts in Melbourne? Yes. Yeah, I mean, it's either about that or about letting your deep-seated sexual insecurities gradually ruin a promising book series. <laughs> yeah. um. <laughs> yes. Later literalised and embodied in your children. 
silly old Frank Herbert. <laughs> silly old Frank. Um, yeah, I don't know. So the reason I mentioned co-ops is because artistic co-ops are starting mm. to pop up. Yeah, sure. Um, but we're reaching a point as well where the left needs to start becoming a genuine problem-solving mm. force in the world, not just a tone police yeah. Not, and not just like a moral whiner, but it, we need to mm. re- retake the economic initiative, basically. Yeah. Away from these feudal bastards who <laughs> yeah. managed to- And they, look, the, they were they were handed a really rich variety of targets in the latter half of the 20th century. Mm. Um, one of the reasons, though, that these heavily unionised workplaces collapsed- was not necessarily because of militant unionism, although that was a factor, obviously, because there were mm. a lot of strikes, was because you had a traditional management structure that was forced into maximal wealth extraction dealing with a heavily unionised workforce. Yeah, sure. If those businesses had been cooperatives, I'm convinced that they would not have would not have experienced the kind of winter of discontent and the sort of madness that... that burned up in the late 70s, early 80s, and, and led to this yeah, neoliberal yeah. backlash against the workforce. That's possible. That And that... Th- <laughs> oh, shit, nearly said it. That third way <laughs> is kind of necessary, really, to to alleviate those concerns. Because that... that I, It's frustrating, but the thing that people always say when you're like... The world is going to shit. We need some more leftist policies. Is like, oh, you weren't there during the seventies, and I was there during the seventies. I saw the whole world fall to bits. And yeah, it's like, well, and this union capital struggle was. Did anybody not think it was going to reach like a flashpoint that there would be mm. a moment where management decided it could not make any more concessions to workers, and workers decided they hadn't. That, that they couldn't make any more concessions to management. Yeah. There was always going to be a point where they couldn't accommodate each other anymore yeah. because management and workers have conflicting interests under a traditional corporate structure. Yeah, exactly. But those those interests- um, So oust the managers. Or- have Owners cooperative is- owners, owners, A workers cooperative means managers are appointed yeah, by yeah, the workers. Yeah. No, 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 I don't right? mean oust the concept of management. I meant- Capital it would be really nice if we could. And in a small enough business, you don't actually need a manager if you've got, you know, a small enough workforce. Yeah. It, it, it's, you, you'll how have like small a, are we talking? Well, and how even-headed are the individuals? This is a fair point. But, you yeah. know, it, if, let's say between, like, three and 12 people, you can normally have- Yeah, a, look, I know people who run a, bookshops- A happy managerless environment. Yeah. But if you're going to have a manager- they need to be appointed by- Yeah, appointed and uh, the possibility the for removing them needs yeah, yeah. to be- And they need to pres- preside over a democratic process of decision-making and not as, like, the skipper who tells the ship where to go. No, that's completely correct, yeah. Yeah. Um, so, I, the yeah, that, that's that, that late 20th century neoliberal backlash, which is a response to the fact that really, in a lot of ways, organised labour had won, mm, you yeah. know, and was winning across the board. Which is why we got offshoring. Yeah. Um, essentially. Yeah. <laughs> well, can't touch us here. You know, how different could history have been mm. if those workers had simply purchased the capital equipment that was yeah. uh, left behind by the offshoring process and continued about their jobs, but as their own 
the yeah, masters. Sure, and then you have the choice of buying, you know, British. You can have, or yeah, you can have a overseas and a, 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 a sweatshop free rover or a mm. sweatshop heavy rover. They could have fucking imagine they could have co opted all of this nervous nationalistic energy that was building up under the service and be be like, yeah, well, we're fucking British, so. <laughs> Why, why are you buying cheap shit that's made by slaves overseas when you could be supporting proud fucking... Local goods. Local England. In, um, yeah. You can be racist and leftist and, the same and prosperous and we could all be Which I would to appeal go. to many people, I think, deep yeah. down. A lot of... And in, actually, Australia, too, has a, a pretty proud history of racism in the leftist movement. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, 100%. <laughs> like, I think the white Australia policy was actually our side's idea. I think it was, Not, yeah. yeah, it wasn't the Tories. S- uh, fuck. Yeah, no, we... I mean, it's not really that long ago that just... Racism is a problem today, obviously. I'm not minimising that. Yeah, but, but it's, it's, today, it, today the problem's cleaning up the mess, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Whereas in the past it was such an unchallenged- And, and everywhere, yeah. You know, you, you wouldn't have- um, it, it was quite weird to challenge the thinking behind it. Yeah. In the same way that it's weird to be a vegan these days. It was kind of weird to be an internationalist humanitarian back then. Yeah, which is a shame. It's just really traumatic to- um, actually think that it wasn't until the, like, 1970s that Indigenous people were on the census. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, that the, the, they were cla- classified flora as and fucking fauna flora and yeah. fauna. That's, that turns my stomach genuinely a little bit when I think about it. And uh, whenever I think that there's, like, difficulties in existing in today's society or whatever, it's like, well, at least I don't have to go back and be like either a pretending to be as racist as everybody else because i'll be outcast if i'm not oh yeah or much more likely be just socialized into being as racist as everybody else it's a weird thought isn't it because like anti-racist white people were even more ostracized than ethnic minorities they were Mm. in some some instances big claim but no like seriously if you were considered to be a race traitor that was oh yeah crazy yeah (laughs) level of hatred directed at you because that was personal that wasn't just like oh well you know i'd love to help the coloreds but what am i gonna do it was like a visceral personal hatred well i guess in the mind of the racist like the the other race might be inferior but at least but they can't help it Yeah, yeah 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 whereas you're deliberately betraying your Sweet white blood. Fucking what a crazy time yeah. to be alive in the whole of human history. Oh, so grim. Such a bad story. Mm. Um, <laughs> back to co-ops. Yeah. <laughs> we have to quickly get on to nice, dry economic topics. Yes. Yes. Save ourselves from the sordid hell of the human mind. Um, oh, yeah. I don't know. Do you have any thoughts on this? Because ultimately what we've got is a situation where in the minds of a lot of people- mm. The um, ch- struggle between labour and management that we had at the end of the 20th century mm. and the collapse of the state capitalism of the Soviet Union and its satellite countries has, in the minds of a lot of people, yeah, basically said, well, left-wing economics can't work. You can't have... Yeah, which is a... Um, socialist uh, economics. Yeah, yeah. A lot of, a lot of people do uh, think that, and a lot of people are really confused probably willfully in many cases about the specifics of how co-ops work and how like, because they're just 
racing to equate it to communism and 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 whatever but i mean co-ops are successful now and gaining in popularity like they're far from a mainstream thing but uh they're a long way from a mainstream thing but they are building up all the time the uk mm. has a lot of successful cooperative businesses Mm. i know the us has a surprisingly (laughs) high something like eight percent of the us workforce is engaged in a cooperative in some way whether it's through their job or a credit union or what have you yeah credit unions did much better out of the financial crisis than investment banks I'm not surprised um, by that. Yeah. And indeed, cooperative workplaces were far less likely to be exposed to toxic debt during the financial crisis. Yeah. In Spain, the Mondragon Corporation has grown to become, I think, the seventh largest mm. business within the Spanish borders. Mm. Um, and they operate now as a multinational firm because they're yeah, building right. up stuff in South America too. And in Maybe predictably in South America, cooperatives are more proportionally much more better represented, uh, much more better. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Listen to me go. Are much better represented <laughs> than they uh, have been tradition- like traditionally in the, in the kind of developed West, as it were. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's good. Um, but Australia has never been a particularly good environment for them. I don't know why. I think uh, I think maybe there was perception in the 60s and 70s that they were a kind of competing influence with unions. I think unionism kind of beat cooperativism. Yeah. Uh, in winning the hearts and minds argument of Australian workers, possibly as part of it. But it might be just this kind of Anglo-Saxon sort of cult of individualism sort of sense that we've inherited. It could be that. Which even if we're going to, you know, sort of says, oh, well, you know, it's all well and good for us to stand up for our rights in the workplace and so on, but, you mm. know, the boss is still the boss at the end of the day. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A lot of people think that way, and it's frustrating. Uh, if any generation is going to turn that around, though, it's ours, right, and the kids underneath us, because I, I, think don't, the- I don't think a lot of people, or I think there are enough people our age who don't have any respect for that sort of myth of uh ownership and and boss shit yeah i'm slightly inclined to lean towards the emergent generation that's coming through now Mm. only because uh they won't suffer from the same inertia that we had as a result of uh, basically like 10 lost years from the financial crisis to now yeah where we've all just drifted essentially yeah um, and have only just begun to realize that we need to comprehensively and completely rework everything i think the kind yeah, of 16 yeah. to 18 year olds now are in a much better position yeah part of me they're is walking very into jealous a world that's already generation. a hellscape right whereas yeah. we had all that wonderful dot-com boom lovely yeah american century goodness just ripped out from under our feet yeah we yeah school exactly. and went, oh, fuck this is all very different to what you led me to believe the world was gonna be like i'm disinclined to like give much credence to the sort of like hack psychological shit about like where generational trauma lies and stuff unless it's in very serious things like civil wars and the holocaust or whatever but i do think back on like 9-11 happening just as we were all kind of starting to transition from children, children to adults, to, to yeah, adults and the subsequent invasions and just the the slow and inexorable dread and political consciousness that was just fucking soaked into everybody our age and, and watching how people have responded to that psychologically. We're quite a fucking, like, grief-struck 
generation somehow. Oh, yeah. We've sustained a lot of shocks. Um, it's uh, it's you interesting. Know, it's pretty bad. The global mm. guarantee was thrown away, like you said, when September 11 happened. The economic guarantee was blown away. By the time we were old enough to vote Howard the fuck out of office, he'd already torn up all of our prospects. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And our consolation prize fucking fizzled as well. It's yeah, just, it's-, <laughs> it's been good. But yeah, the kids coming through these days, I think, because they never had that um, mm. kind of false sense no, of they're, prosperity they're and, the- and the kind of golden future ahead of them. They're yeah. possibly psychologically tougher. I think so. And, and more I think at home with electronics and the, the, that kind of new wave yeah. media economy. That's the, I hate that fucking generation because they're <laughs> narratively destined to be the heroes. We're the fucking psychopomps that are just like, <laughs> what do you do? We just fucking punt a boat back and forth across a river of souls all day. What do you do? Go get the magic sword. Oh, you've got gigantic fucking queer communities in your high school. You've solved bullying somehow without any intervention from adults. Discourse based. Thank none you. Of you none, <laughs> none of you are racist. You're all fucking tough as nails. You look at this David Hogg character going on and doing gun crime advocacy shit and like he's a little bit kind of irritating sometimes maybe but he's fucking also doing hero's work and just relentlessly standing up against the entire fucking media apparatus and just being like yeah but like kids getting shot is bad. Oh yeah. And just doing that again and again and again. These fucking kids smug as fuck. Put them all in the ocean, I say. <laughs> well they've been at war their whole lives in a sense, haven't they? Like yeah. if if you're old enough to vote in um, the state mm. election this year for the first time, then for your entire life, mm. we have been doing the war on terror. Yeah, yeah. And 100%. that's all you've ever known. To we be thought a, that war was done. A when constant we- threat of Muslims everywhere and so <laughs> forth. And, you know, you become, as you see, mm. toughness, but also desensitization, right? Yeah. You know what? You know what we are and what they are? They're Ernest Hemingway's, like, author self-insert character in The Old Man on the Bridge. Yeah. And we're the old man that, like, bombs are going off around us and we just sit there and we're, like, worried about what's going to happen to our fucking cats. (laughs) And they're just, like, trying to be compassionate, but they're like, sorry, man, I don't know what's going to happen to your cats, but uh, anyway, I'm going to go fight a war. I'm young and healthy. (laughs) See ya. We're like, "Ah, it's terrible. Um, anyway, yeah, I don't know what else really to say about co-ops other than I'm for them. Yeah, well, there wasn't a huge amount to it in just that, that Just that sense. they're good and be informed it's just, about yeah, what they actually do. Reintroducing the idea. I, I think that the, that's the thing. Co-ops will succeed if we get more people thinking about them as the option mm. that they are. Oh, there was one thing that I wanted to say about them, and that is one of their greatest benefits is almost a side effect in that they help to, like, attenuate and potentially eliminate this fucking crazy executive bonus model that we have at the moment, where we have individuals who make fucking, like, $50 million a year through salary and bonuses. Oh, yeah, and stuff. Jesus. Because when you have a democratically elected leader that kind of rotates in and out and when wages are democratically negotiated and everybody's on the hook for the failures and everybody's on sort of the pedestal for the successes, then you don't have to have these insane paper targets put up just to deflect sort of criticism from the monstrosity of capitalism. No, that's right. And... and- what you get with a cooperative is you get a business that becomes a genuine communal good. Yeah. Um, you know, I think one of the earliest ones 
that we sort of have as a modern cooperative was, you know, in Rochester, Rochester, Rochdale, during mm. the Industrial Revolution, the workers were too poor to afford a lot of staple goods, so they scrimped and saved money until they could set up this sort of, you know, Rochdale cooperative shop. Mm. And it's that they published the Rochdale Principles, which is still uh, an important foundational document to cooperatives world over these days. Mm. But, yeah they got a reputation around Britain for, like, if you wanted, you know, products that were high quality and cheap and not adulterated with um, cutting agents, <laughs> yeah. you know, you went to the Rochester, Rochdale, oh, it's late, <laughs> the Rochdale yeah. um, cooperative. Yeah. So they, they, they can compete. This is the other thing. They're totally competitive with traditional business. Well, yeah, I think if you're a capitalist, you have an irrational love for efficiency. They seem like quite efficient Models. Yeah, yeah, and they they never offshore. Yeah. And, you know, most inefficiencies you get with cooperatives are just down to kind of not-for-profit community utility, which is what their purpose is to serve anyway. So Yeah, you don't get these massive, gigantic, systemic In. efficiencies that massive corporations subtly and quietly bake into the fabric of society. Like, oh, your internet's going to go out every four weeks. And they're going to patch the individual wires in the road. <laughs> Fucking, oh, my God. Um, anyway. I can't use Wi-Fi if I'm in my kitchen. <laughs> yeah, right? <laughs> cool. And if only you had a cooperative to fucking help you out. We should wrap, we should wrap it. it up. Yeah. yeah that, that was a good That was a bit of more of a meandering one, wasn't it? That's all right. That's Sometimes okay. you want a meandering one. Yeah. I think, you know, it speaks of our own broad minds and, and, and those of our listeners. Yes. Indeed, are we not all geniuses? I feel like a fucking idiot Super when we genius record this, actually. Super genius of- the, Yeah, who, of course, me too. That's I, a probably you a think good you thing. feel stupid when you're recording it? You should see how I feel when I'm listening to your <laughs> amazing, like, polished edit that you do afterwards, going, oh, I do all- Stop talking, Darcy. Stop I, I talking. I do almost zero editing. Yeah, apart from my- Pauses. Yeah, I actually couldn't edit out the one from last week because you were like, sorry about the abneal pause. And it's like, well, there's six seconds that you just burned, Darcy. Anyway, let's let's call it. Uh, Go away. Talk shit.